Yeah, so I asked that question and I bring that up because um, today in the, in, the, in the text, we're gonna see um, uh, specifically a, a group of people who are going to have left Rome and then, and then return. And things are gonna be a little bit different for them. And, and so it, I think it's very fitting to ask that question. And so the title of this week's sermon is Grasp the Text in Their Town. Uh, and we're gonna be looking at Romans one through seven. And if you were here last week, and as we talked about how we're gonna be walking through this book, little, little uh, red light should be going off. Like, well, what about verses two through six? Are we just skipping that? No, we're not. Um, today, I wanna specifically look at their town, which is the town and the city of Rome. And so uh, in order to do that, Rome isn't mentioned until verse seven. And so, but I think just to give us, put us in context to put us in town, we're gonna skip to verse seven. Next week, we'll go back in and go one through seven uh, completely. So that, that is that. So last week though, uh, I mentioned this, and if you've been around Lower Town for a while, you probably have this memorized. Um, and if not, that's okay. Uh, number one, the first point there is grasp the text in their town. That's the, that's the title of the sermon today. This is from uh, Scott Duvall's book, Grasping God's Word. Uh, it was something that I was introduced to in seminary. And that was, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 years ago. And it has changed the way I read my Bible. Uh, this is something that I use on a daily basis that is uh, very helpful when it comes to studying the Bible and so number one is grasp the text in their town. What was it like for them to, to be the, the original hearers of this letter of any book of the Bible when you're, when you're reading it? And then number two is you gauge the width of the river. And so you have culture and language and time and situation and what covenant and who's the emperor and, and what you fill in that blank. And, and with the Romans, we're gonna see uh, because we're on this side of the cross that we're in the same covenant where, where Paul is writing a letter to the church. We're gonna see a lot of similarities not, not like trying to compare St. Paul to first century Rome, not necessarily like that, but, but the, uh, the, the principalizing bridge, the principle, the heart of what Paul is getting at with the Romans is a, a, a direct application that we can cross that principalizing bridge. Number four, there is uh, consult the biblical roadmap, which we'll do today, but we're gonna go even further into the book of Romans to kind of help us uh, understand what's going on in verse seven. And then finally, and only then, after you do all that work, then can you go to point five and say, okay, now, now I can grasp the text in my town. What does this mean to me? And so last week we zoomed in specifically, not just their town, but specifically on the author. And we looked at Paul. And so we, we looked at verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And we looked at his conversion. So again, consult the biblical roadmap. Where, where do we know, uh, where do we hear about Paul? How do we know? And then we learn about a guy named Saul who is converted on the road to Damascus and, and is converted. He is persecuting the church. He's murdering and killing and sending Christians to jail. And God's like you, I, I want you, I'm gonna call you and you are going to um, do many things for me. And, and Paul is called to uh, share the gospel with the Gentiles. And so you're gonna see in a little bit here that he travels all over, uh, especially the, the Greek known area of different cities and plant churches and all these different things and all these different cities to, to be a missionary to the Gentiles. Whereas Peter stays a pastor in Jerusalem uh, to the Jews. And so that, that's kind of a little bit of context of who he was. And, and then just looking at his life and, and who he was. And I, and I think there might be someone, maybe even yourself, where you go, yeah, I think this church thing, that's great, but it's not for me. I, if, if you knew what I did or you know who I, I'm just a hypocrite, fill in the blank, uh, that, that this phrase that no one anywhere at any time is beyond the reach of the gospel. No one, uh, including, including yourself. And then again, 
the gospel is for us. It's for those who are Bible-believing members of a church, fill in the blank. Like, yes, this is who I am. And yet I need the gospel. Uh, every day, every moment, I need to apply the gospel to my life. And so again, this book is not written to you, right? This book is written to first century Christians in Rome, and yet it is written for us that we are beneficiaries of God's grace when it comes to this. So let's then look and grasp this text in their town, uh, which is Rome. Uh, my wife and I had the uh, privilege of being able to visit. We went on vacation eight, seven, eight years ago. And one of the stops was in Rome. And every time I see the Colosseum, I always think of obviously Gladiator, you know, and I always, when I remember when I saw it, I, you know, said the line from Gladiator, if you remember the guys like, I didn't know man could build such things. You know what I mean? And it's still, it's like, it's still just an awe-inspiring spectacle to go, to go to Rome and to see that. Uh, we, we had a good time uh, there, uh, recommend it. And, and so that's what we're gonna be looking at, uh, Rome. And so uh, there's going to be a little bit, a little bit today of getting on that bridge. We're going to get a foot on the bridge of crossing that principalizing bridge. What are some aspects that might apply to, and truth that applies to us, this side of the cross, the same way that it would have been for the church in Rome. Uh, so if you would, uh, if you're able, go ahead and stand with me. And uh, we are able to do that uh, just in this series so far because it's kind of a shorter text. This is gonna be the verse that we're gonna be looking at, Romans 1, 7. And, uh, and so let's just read aloud with me uh, together. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. That is where we're going to be today. So... Uh, I think now maybe you can understand why I wanted to look at grasping the text in their town and zoom in on Rome and specifically on this verse to all those in Rome. So where is Rome, right? I'm gonna show a map of the world. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I think we, we understand Italy where Rome is, but I, I, and I know this map is mega confusing um, and very colorful, that's great. Uh, but what this is, is a map of the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. He goes on three missionary journeys, and it's really hard to see. And I don't even try to read it, but you can see it's about as, as like if, if there was an airplane uh, back then, which there wasn't, uh, unless you watch uh, Ancient Aliens on the History Channel, maybe there was some airplanes, I don't know. Um, but, but if you were to fly from Jerusalem to Rome, it's like, it's like a thousand miles of a flight, right? This is not a, a, a small jaunt here. And, uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's quite a hike. And so Paul goes all the way up uh, there into, into Greece uh, and all the Greek cities that were up there in the Greek city states and plants church after church after church. And if you are familiar with the book of Revelations, um, the book of Revelation, the last book of our Bible, that it starts off with, with John addressing the seven churches that, are, that Paul plants in that area. And so Paul has been all over the place, but Paul never goes to Rome, at least not to plant the church. So he's writing this letter before he's ever been to Rome, okay? So Paul is writing all these letters, writing specifically this letter, his, his treatise. I mean, this thing is, is a phenomenal book of theology that is incredibly robust. And yet it begs the question then, how did these churches get planted in Rome? Who is Paul writing to? If Paul didn't plant the church and if Peter didn't plant the church and the, most of the apostles were already executed and, and, and martyred by this time. Well, who did this? Where, where do these Christians come from? 
early on, right? We're talking 40 to 50 AD. This is just a decade or two after Christ has been crucified and risen from the dead. And here we are, we have churches being planted in Rome. How in the world did that happen? I um, initially had titled this sermon, All Roads Lead to Rome. And I started doing some research, like where's that phrase come from? And I was hoping there'd be some really cool, powerful story. And there's not. Uh, There was just the, it was written in 1175 by a guy named Alain Delisle, a French theologian and poet. And that's all he said. He was just like, all roads lead to Rome. And that was that was it. I guess people were like, yep, that checks out. All roads lead to Rome. And we're moving on. That was it. So I was like, yeah, I'm not going to title uh, my sermon that. So what, how, how did we get to Rome? Tradition, if you grew up in, in the Catholic church or, or you, the tradition is going to say that the apostle Peter uh, planted the church. You see that he's got a key there. And this comes from Matthew uh, 16. Uh, when Jesus turns to Peter and says, on this rock, I will build my church. And so they say, I'm gonna give you the keys to the kingdom that whatever you loose on earth will be loose, whatever you bind will be bound. And so that's just kind of tradition. And, and yet we can see that, is this really the case? And so we can, we can look at what we know, if we consult the biblical roadmap, we know that the apostle Peter stays in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, in Galatians 1, 18 through 20, the apostle Paul says that he goes to Jerusalem to, to go to the church, to be acquainted with Peter because he's in Jerusalem. We, we know he's in Jerusalem. We, he stays there after Pentecost. And, and there's kind of maybe just a little sidebar. Uh, when we talk about church planting, there's kind of two maybe methods that people will talk about. Are you a, are you a Pauline church planter or are you a, a Petrine church planter? Meaning, Did you plant a church in a neighborhood or a community and then stay there for the remainder of your life like Peter? Or do you go like Paul and just move from city to city to city, town to town to town and plant lots of churches? There's no one better than the other or one's right, one's wrong. They're both fantastic. It's great. Um, And so that's just just kind of where, where we're at. So if it's not Peter, then what's going on? I mentioned last week that one of the commentaries that I will be quoting from quite regularly is a guy named Douglas Moo. Um, and uh, in his, his uh, commentary, The Letter to the Romans, this is his big one, his Maximus Moo, uh, what we call it. Um, he says this, the tradition that the church in Rome was founded by Peter or Peter and Paul together cannot be right. Uh, it is in this very letter that Paul uh, enunciates the principle that he will not build upon another person's foundation. And that is in, in 1520, right? So, so here, even Doug Moo is using the biblical roadmap. He's saying, even in their own letter, uh, that this Paul, for sure, Paul didn't plant this church. Um, this makes it impossible to think that he would ever uh, have written this letter or planned the kind of visit he describes in verses 1 uh, 8 through 15, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, to a church that was founded by Peter. Uh, nor is it likely that Peter could ever have been at Rome early enough to have founded the church there, since the traditions we possess associate no other apostle with the church in Rome. The assessment of the fourth century church father Ambrositer is probably correct. The Romans, and here now he's quoting uh, Ambrositer, you know what I'm saying, uh, that guy's name, uh, that that he says that the Romans have embraced the faith of Christ, albeit according to the Jewish rite, without seeing any sign or mighty works of any of the apostles. That's us, right? So when we talk about let's gauge that width of the river, this is us. I'm assuming none of you have witnessed any apostle that is one who was sent out by the risen Jesus Christ, someone who was able to perform miracles. That it was so, so and, and 
Ambrosiaster is saying that these churches were planted and founded not by any apostles, not because these people witnessed something that was miraculous. They simply heard the good news of the risen Jesus and they say, that's our Messiah. That's us, right? We're in the same boat. That, that river is very short when we talk about this. The most likely scenario is that Roman Jews who were converted on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, CX 2 verse 10, or sorry, 2.10, brought their faith in Jesus as the Messiah back with them to their home synagogues. In this way, the Christian movement in Rome was initiated. So again, rewind the clock. Jesus is, being, uh, is gonna be crucified in Jerusalem uh, at Passover. So, so Jews from all over the area would have uh, made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem on, in the, for, to celebrate the Passover meal. And Jesus does that. Jesus is there with his disciples in Jerusalem. And he says, I, I desire to, to, to eat this meal with you, uh, with his disciples. And so all people, for all Jews from all over, the, all over the world go to Jerusalem during Passover. And they're now hearing Peter preach the gospel, the good news. And then they scatter. They go back to their home synagogues and say, we've been reading the story wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. Everything is about Jesus. It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> So uh, let's, keep, let's keep going here. This means that the Great Commission worked, right? This means that when we look at Matthew 28, when Jesus has already risen from the dead, right before he ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, he says, go and make disciples of all people, of all nations. And they do that. Believe in Jesus and then go home. And they tell others. And these house churches are started and planted. So who are all of those in Rome? This is just that first phrase there to all of those in Rome. Who are they, right? So again, they started in the Jewish synagogue. So how did Christianity spread to the Gentiles? Again, Gentile is just a word for any other ethne, any other ethnicity that's not Jewish, uh, yeah, Jewish heritage. So uh, this is where history, I think, is quite fascinating. You, you, if you don't like history, sorry, we're gonna be doing a lot of reading as far as history goes today. But I think it's quite fascinating. I think it helps us, again, put it in context to help us grasp the text in their town. How did it go from the Jewish Christians to the Gentile Christians? They wouldn't have had a lot of crossover. Again, Douglas Moo says this. Uh, an important event in history of the Jews in Rome is mentioned uh, by the Roman historian Setinonius, uh, in his life of Claudius. Uh, Claudius was the emperor in 41 through 54. His adopted stepson Nero would take over at his death uh, right after this. And Nero is pretty uh, notorious for the burning of Rome and, and the persecution of Christians. But Claudius though, uh, he is notorious for something that he does to Jewish Christians. So it says this, he expelled Claudius. This is a quote here from this uh, Roman historian. Uh, from the first century, that he expelled the Jews from Rome because they were consistently uh, rioting at the instigation of Crestus. Most scholars, at this end quote there, most scholars agree that Crestus is a corruption of the Greek Christos, and that the reference is probably to disputes within the Jewish community over the claims of Jesus to be the Christos or the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Continuing, the significance of, of this scenario for Romans is clear. 
Gentile Christians, undoubtedly part of the community before the expulsion, would have come into greater prominence as a result of the absence of all or most of the Jewish Christians. Theologically, this would also have meant an acceleration of the movement of the Christian community away from its Jewish origins. Claudius's decree of expulsion was apparently allowed to lapse within a few short years, uh, again, maybe perhaps at his death in 54, so that when Paul writes in 57 to Jewish Christians, such as Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila, they have returned to Rome, right? So, so Claudius is persecuting Jewish Christians. They scatter, they leave. Paul gets to know a lot of people and then they all go back home and they're gonna be mentioned in this letter and they return to Rome and, but they are no longer the dominant group, right? This is why I had you ask that question. What, what have things changed, right? So you have these Jewish Christians who had to leave their hometown, leave their home church that they helped start. Who knows how many years they were gone, but they come back and things are now a little bit different. There's people in charge that they maybe didn't expect to be in charge. These circumstances are a recipe for division along social and or theological lines. And we're gonna see this all throughout the book of Romans. And this is why context matters. This is why we wanna start with grasping the text in their town, because what we're gonna see Paul do is he's gonna kind of pit against one another law and grace. He's gonna say, if you're gonna live under the law, which is the old way of doing things, under the law of Moses, and there would have been Jews who would have said, no, we still need to do these things, but yes, Jesus is cool. We're cool with Jesus. He's the Messiah, but we gotta obey the law versus grace and the gospel. No, we're, we're set free from the law and set free from sin. So we fight sin, we kill sin, we mortify our flesh for the grace by the grace of God, not by legalism and by law. And you can see how those would have butt heads a little bit. And so Paul, we're gonna see that theme pop up over and over again in this book. Moreover, the decentralized nature of the Jewish community from which the Christian community sprang would also make it likely that the Christians in Rome were grouped into several house churches. Confirmation uh, that this was the case comes from Romans 16, which we'll take a peek at here in a bit, where Paul seems to greet several different house churches. It is possible then that different house churches aligned themselves more or less with one group or the other. So, who are these people? Let's consult the biblical roadmap. I'm gonna to skip to the last chapter in Romans chapter 16. If you read Paul's other uh, books, normally he greets people right at the beginning. But now he's gonna do it at the end of the book. He's gonna greet people by name and he's gonna name, like name name, a lot of people and not just people, but also groups. He's gonna name churches that people have planted in Rome, but these are all now Romans. Some are Jewish, some are Greek, some are Romans, but they're all there now living in Rome. Uh, and so you can see, I put some ellipses in here. I kind of, it's all really great, but we're going to, you know, in a year and a half, we're going to go through this again uh, more deeply and look at these individuals. But right now I just want to read, these are these individuals. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kenekwe. Greet Prisca and Aquila, all right, or Priscilla and Aquila. These would have been Jews, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church in their house, right? So Priscilla and Aquila have a house church. Greet my beloved uh, Pef, yep, Epinatius, who was my, the first convent, uh, convert, convent, convent, first convert 
uh, to Christ in Asia. And, and let me just say, it was like, this is kind of, why is he naming people? This is kind of weird. I do this, right? I, not, now, when I send an email, right? So if somebody leaves our church uh, and they move to Milwaukee uh, and they're looking for a church, I, I always reach out to the pastor and just say, hey, I've got some friends that are coming. You, sh- you should just make sure you say hi and welcome them. And right, and 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 this the, the same thing happened. Now, when I write an email, it's not canonized uh, for everyone to read, but that's what that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, "Hey, these people are 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 uh, followers of Jesus. They have blessed me in their love for Christ, and that's what's happening." Uh, greet Mary. Greet Mary, who has uh, worked hard for you. Greet Andonicus um, and Junia, uh, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. Greet Amplatius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Syntychus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian, Greet who would have been uh, Jewish as well. Greet those uh, in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. That's, uh, that's, what a, that's a very unfortunate uh, name. Uh, greet those workers in the Lord, Typhonea and Typhrosa. Typhosa, sure. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Right, you could, you, this, is a, this is very personal that he's writing to these individuals. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegian, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogius, Julia, uh, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Right? There's a lot of people being named, right? And I clearly know how to say their names. Uh, and so th- he's listing these names, and he said, these, this is the church. And they're all, who know, right? Rome's a big city and, and they're split up in different regions or areas of Rome uh, that the, they would have been having church. And so Paul knows a lot of people and yet he has never stepped foot in the city proper of Rome. But he's met all these people. He knows them, knows them well. So going back into the text here, Romans 1, 7, to all those in Rome, who are loved by God. Just briefly, it's just, a, it's just a, a fascinating phrase to be loved by God, that the individuals, these people, uh, that again, he, he didn't list them here. He's saying all of those in Rome, those who are in the body of Christ, who are in Rome, they're loved by God because that phrase, beloved was of the son of Jesus, that Jesus is the beloved, but now because he has died and shed his blood for them and their sins have been forgiven by the mercy of God, that we are now brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are now loved by God. And then he says to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And this is where we can start to maybe cross that principalizing bridge a little bit. What does Paul mean to call them or us or believers in general uh, saints? There are two ways that saints, that word has been interpreted over the centuries millennia. Um, and, and one, I think probably one of the more popular views is from the Catholic church. I'm not dogging here Catholics or anything, because I think this is still a very popular phrase. Uh, but if you become a saint, right, if you grew up Catholic and maybe you had a patron saint of something, fill in the blank, there's a saint for a lot of different things, a saint that was known for something, but they did some 
really great work. They were kind of the super Christians, if you will. Uh, and and they, they usually did something miraculous uh, for God. And they have to have like a confirmed uh, witnessed miracle to become a saint. And, when, and within uh, Catholicism, uh, when you become a saint and you're canonized as a saint, you kind of get a get out of purgatory free card, uh, right? And so if you are a Catholic, and you believe in something called purgatory, that regardless of who you are, everyone goes to purgatory until your sins have been paid for, and then you get to go to heaven. Saints, they, they get to go, right? So just a very select few, very few people uh, get to actually go directly to heaven, and those would be the saints. And yet we, we kind of use this vernacular in this way, maybe not so much as um, this saint person, or we live in a city called St. Paul, um, right? I am the chaplain for the St. Paul saints. So does that, if what does that make me? You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's pretty sweet. Uh, no, right? But yeah, we'll, we'll look at somebody like, oh man, that guy's a saint, right? Oh man, she's a saint, right? We kind of use that, that vernacular of like, oh man, they're, they're, they're above the rest. And yet that's not how the apostle Paul, and that's definitely not how the, any of the New Testament writers address and use that word saints, right? Paul is not addressing a select few of people who are super Christians, who have done some, something miraculous. He's addressing everybody who finds themselves a follower of Jesus. And so R.C. Sproul, again, in his commentary says this, in the New Testament, the word translated as saints is hagioi, that's the Greek there, meaning the holy ones. They are not holy in and of themselves, not holy because they have reached an unthinkable level of virtue or righteousness. Rather, they are those who have been made holy by the fact of having been set apart by God and consecrated to him. There's a very close link between the idea of God calling people and God sanctifying people. The word sanctify literally means set apart or saintly. The church is both the ecclesia, again, that's the Greek, that's the corporate word that we get our word church, ecclesia, those who have been called out and the Haggai, Haggioi, plural, but it's also individual, the saints, the individual, all right? It's both corporate and individual, saint. It's everybody who's a follower of Jesus. So it's not just something special, right? So we got to kind of get out of our cultural maybe way of using that word saint. This is everybody. You are a saint if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So again, this book is for us. When we cross that bridge, the width of the river is not very wide. And then continuing here, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just notice here, right? Words have meanings. And when we, when we are able to walk through a passage the way that we're able to do, we can, we can take notice of, of certain phrases and words. Everything's got a meaning here. Grace and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't, and, and, and Paul is gonna do this, where he, and he does it quite a lot, blessings and peace be upon you, but it's, he's the one doing it. He's the one saying peace and blessings. But now this is, a, this is again, a shift. He's, this is not just a blessing from, from Paul. This is not just a blessing and peace from somebody that these Christians in Rome have never even met saying grace and peace from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus. This is direct grace. And so just in our final few minutes, I just wanna spend a little bit of time and examine 
this idea of crossing that principalizing bridge. What are some principles? Right? We're, not, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna get into our town. We're not, and I don't wanna do that because we're not, we're not there yet. We're gonna spend a lot of time in the book of Romans looking at, okay, how do we directly apply this? Right? But this is gonna be more of a, of a broad application. And as we move through this book, it's gonna narrow in and say, okay, uh, now what does this mean specifically uh, for me, for the Haggioi? So it's this, what does it mean? What does it mean to us? Uh, the first thing, uh, a lot of you, maybe not a lot of you, some of you know this, maybe I've mentioned this from the pulpit before, but I, uh, I, listen, I listen to Catholic radio a lot on AM when I'm, when I'm driving around, like AM, I don't even know what that is. Back in my day, <laughs> I, used to, I used to have this thing called the radio. <laughs> uh, uh, but there is a Catholic radio, relevant radio. And in the mornings, there's always a gentleman on there. His name is Patrick Madrid. Maybe I've talked about this guy before. But he just takes phone calls. He takes phone calls from random people all over the country, and they have questions about um, specifically within Catholicism, and he answers them. And he is uh, very blunt. Uh, he's he's gracious, but he does not uh, curb uh, the Catholic doctrine and dogma when it comes to different views. And so I'm not going to get into that. And and so I listen to that. But every once in a while, um, I get a little frustrated. Because it's like, man, 75% of the time, I'm like, yeah, Patrick, get him. And then it's like, oh, Patrick, you know what I mean? And I get frustrated. And then I change it to the evangelical station, uh, 900, 900 a.m. Uh, and uh, it's 1330, in case you're the Catholic radio. Um, but I change it to 900. And there's a, a well-known pastor, maybe you've never heard of him, but he's Scottish, Alistair Begg. And uh, he was preaching the other day. And I, and I just happened to catch the end of his sermon and, uh, and, and I was like, wow, that, that preaches. I need to talk about that on Sunday. And, and so, I'm, so I'm going to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote him. So he's preaching. This is a sermon that he preached back in like 99, back in the day uh, before radio. No, I'm kidding. Um, that he, he, so I'm just gonna read this. And it's kind of a long quote, but, I, but just, just listen to now the difference between um, just being a, 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 an individual who's Jewish or, or a devout Jew, but in our context, right? So I want you to kind of bridge the gap here and, and act as if Alistair Begg is specifically talking to those who are in Rome or specifically even our church. Because a lot of times it's so easy culturally, and I think it maybe is getting harder culturally to just to be a, a cultural Christian. Uh, that we are becoming way more polarized, whether it's with Christian nationalism or whatever it may be, that, that we might get lumped in. And so to defend our faith is, becomes a little bit more polarizing. And yet there are times, and I know I was one of them, and there are people, most likely, uh, even in this room, that say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church, I give money to church, I volunteer at my church. And yet has there actually been a renovation of the heart? Has Christ actually right? Put on the defibrillators to your dead heart and, and shocked you back to life or, or actually made you alive, quickened us, according to Ephesians 1 and 2. So I want to read this quote. Um, I'm not going to read it in a Scottish accent. I thought about it and I was like, that's just super distracting and I'd probably mess it up and it would, who knows, turn into something else. So he says this, see the question this morning, and we'll come back to this at another time. And just in context, he's, he's preaching from the book of, of Corinthians. Um, he says, in the Old Testament, the community is described in two words. One word is edah, the transliteration of the Hebrew. And this refers to a community of God as a result of heritage and external 
union, okay? So that would be, let's just say, let's just take my kids. Oh, they're, my, they're pastor's kids, right? They're usually the worst, okay? I was one of them. My wife was one of them. We get it. We know what we're in for, right? But just because you grow up in the church, just because you know the stories in the Bible, just because you, you sing the songs and you recite the verses means I might be part of a community, or am I actually of the community? That's where he's getting at here. Uh, so this, this heritage and external union. The second word is qual, which describes those who are united to God within the Adah, who are united as a result of hearing the call of God to them. It is that qual uh, word, which is then transliterated ecclesia, the church in the New Testament, translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. And in that, the word ecclesia, which is used throughout the New Testament as description of the nature of the church, thereby reminding us that it is clearly possible to be part of a visible, identifiable church entity as a result of external um, assignation. Is that, I, is that right? Assign, assignation. He's, he's Scottish, so it probably sounded really cool when he said it. Religious interests, focus, heritage, baptism, family tradition. It is distinctly possible to be part of that Allah, Adah, excuse me, without being part of the qual, without having heard the call of God into our spirit saying, I want to include you in my son. I know that you have benefited from all these external elements and community and being part of this body of this church. I know that this is important to you. I know that you are trying to work all that out, but listen, don't let all of that prevent you from hearing the word of truth as it is proclaimed in the gospel, believing it and being included in Christ. You see, this is the great issue. Is a person a Christian as a result of something that is done to them by a religious professional? Is a person a Christian as a result simply of them determining that they will now include Christ and Christianity in their portfolio? Or is a person a Christian only when they have been brought to see the utter end of themselves and the hopelessness of all of their attempts at acceptance with God? And they have cried out to him, Lord Jesus Christ, I cast myself upon your mercy and am amazed that you would include me in your company. Those are drastically, drastically different. Right? And as somebody who grew up in the church, somebody who has friends who grew up in the church, I, I am a pastor and I'm in ministry because of people who grew up in the church, who knew the right things to say, who said the right things, who preached the right things, and yet they didn't believe it. Hypocrites at best. They walk the walk and they talk the talk. I've mentioned this before. My sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Beefus, right? She had it above, our, above the chalkboard. Remember back in my day, we used chalk. Yeah. Uh, and the chalkboard, and she had it up above, I don't know what, the, what it was, the, our walk talks and our talk talks, but our walk talks louder than our talk talks. Right? And there are people who grow up in the church, who live it, and they, yeah, I'm a, I'm a good person. I, I go to church, and yet they just haven't ever actually died to self, taken off their old self, taken off their sin, and put on the righteousness of God, which we're going to look at a lot in Romans chapter 3, that great exchange of my sin for the righteousness of Christ. It just has never happened. We just go through the motions. And so when persecution or when 
Life choices really get in front of us. We choose sin rather than to die to self and to choose Jesus. That's what Paul's gonna be talking about. And that's why we have to grasp the text in their town because Paul's gonna address these differences between uh, Greeks and Jews and their, uh, their, their law of, I just gotta do this and do this and don't do that and don't do that and I'm in. Paul's like, you're reading the story wrong. And I want us, how are we reading the story? Are we reading our own uh, pre, preconceived notions and preconceptions into a text to say, oh, that's what a Christian is, so then I gotta do that, I gotta act like that, or am I set free from that, and now I follow, I run after Jesus, and I live a life, I'm holy, I'm separate, I kill sin, I fight sin. I pursue sanctification, not because I just wanna be a better person or because I wanna earn one with the big guy upstairs, but because he loves me and he sent his son to die for me. That's the book of Romans. And, and listen, I need that. I, we all need that. That's the gospel because I am so prone to wander, right? The, the old hymn that we sing, uh, which is called Ebenezer. Here, I raise my Ebenezer. Uh, Come thou found, right? I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to leave the God I love. I am so prone to go back to the law because it's easy and it makes me look good. It makes people look at me and go, man, I got this thing figured out. No, I don't. I need the grace of God. I need the gospel to set me free. And I have to daily be reminded of that. Another aspect that we see is this means that the Great Commission works. <laughs> this is still true, right? Because again, you have a church who never saw the apostles, a church who never witnessed Jesus Christ. And they go forth hearing the good news, the gospel, and they share the good news in Rome. And Rome became a Mecca of Christianity because of their work. It worked then and it works now. That width of that river is very, very narrow. And this ties directly into the sermon that I gave a couple weeks ago about casting vision for this year. And we need to get to know the context that we're in, wherever you find yourself, the people that you rub shoulders with, right? To do our likes and our hobbies with one another. It was really encouraging that after I got done with that sermon, I had multiple people say, hey, let's get together this week, right? No agenda, let's just hang out. It's very encouraging. And I would encourage you to do the same. Share the good news the same way the Romans did of who Jesus is, right? The same way our sisters and brothers did in Rome thousands of years ago. The gospel still works. The gospel still tears down the kingdom of darkness, that we are on the offensive when it comes to that way of thinking about the gospel and the good news of Christ. And so in application, same as last week, but just add a little bit. You have been called, right? Paul has been called that Jesus looks at you and he doesn't invite you. Oh, please, hey, hey, if, if you want, follow me. Follow me. It's a command because there are consequences if we disobey a command. This isn't an invitation. No, I don't, I don't want to. All right, that's fine. Maybe next time. It's a command. You've been called and you have been set apart, right? The same languages that, that Bag used it and, and the Greek, the uh, of Hanoi, right? You've been set apart. You are holy. You've been set apart for the gospel and not just introspectively to keep it to myself, but to proclaim the good news of the gospel that has taken us from darkness into marvelous light that we get to now share and proclaim 
the good news of the gospel. We're gonna have communion like we do every week at Lower Town. And so we have these uh, elements here on both sides and it's just uh, juice, which represents the, the blood of Christ that was shed for us, the wafer that represents the broken body of Christ, like that we get to remember. And again, it's not going through the motions. It's not, oh, I'm just doing this because this is what, this is what Christians do. This is what people do. They, they drink juice and they break bread. No, this is, this is a chance to remember and be reminded of the freedom that I have in Christ, that my sins have been forgiven and I need this all the time. I need to viscerally taste and remember and see that he is good and loving and gracious and that sets me free from the law and allows me to be free in his grace and mercy and fight sin. Let me pray. The worship team's gonna come back up and they're gonna sing two songs and so feel free to grab uh, the elements, and all I would ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, man, I'd love for you to partake of these. If not, let me just pray, think about it. Uh, and maybe you've not heard the gospel that way and, and maybe you thought it was just emotion. So maybe for the first time today, uh, maybe you would might like to have communion with uh, the body of Christ and remembering the finished work of Christ on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together this morning. And I thank you that we get to take these elements now and remember uh, that it is only because of the work of your son, that I could do nothing. I could obey the law perfectly, and yet I'm still a sinner, that I can be a good person, that I can do well, I can treat others kindly and be a sinner and fall flat on my face, fall short of your glory. And it's only because of your son that we're able to pray to you, that we're able to approach you, that we're able to be called brothers and sisters with Christ, our elder brother, because of his finished work. And so I pray that we remember that, that we repent of sins, and we be encouraged together today as a body of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.